Hey everyone, welcome back to Cedar and Cypress podcast. You are now listening to the third part of our spiritual warfare series. It will also be the final episode of our spiritual warfare series, which we're super excited about. Today, we're going to be talking all about end times. We're going to be talking about God's eternal victory and how we as the body of Christ get to participate in that eternal victory in our lives. Before we jump into all that amazing, crazy end times discussion, Liv, what was the best part of your week? Well, um, I think I have two. Um, my birthday was this week. So yay! yay. So <laughs> that was really fun. Um, I turned 25, which is crazy to me. <laughs> I feel like I did have a moment of quarter life crisis somewhere in there, but um yeah. I mean, there was just one day I like wasn't in the best mood. And then I was like ranting about stuff. And then I was like, is this my crisis? <laughs> this is my quarter life crisis happening, isn't it? But um, yeah, so it was a really good birthday. We just, I got to like go out to dinner with some girlfriends and then I got to spend some time with um, my husband and just got to dinner with him. And um, I got to go to uh this place here that's basically like a farm but it also kind of has like a really cute like little store inside where you can get like ice cream and like sandwiches and stuff and um so we went there on my actual uh or like the day before my birthday because my birthday was just a crazy day like work-wise so we kind of celebrated the day before but um yeah we like walked around and like saw the animals and then ate ice cream and my husband was kind of making fun of me because he was like, I feel like most people when they're like in their 20s, they want to like go crazy and have yeah. a crazy birthday. He was like, and then for you, you just like want to be eight. Like yeah. you just want to go look at the animals and eat ice cream, <laughs> which is which is fair because that, yes, that is like my happy place is like, let's go see some goats and eat some ice cream. <laughs> so, I love that. Yeah, it was great. So yeah, we did that. I got a new tattoo for my birthday. So all the fun things. Um, I mean, that was painful, but it's fun afterwards because now I have a new tattoo. So yeah. Um, yeah. So that was probably my favorite. It's just like those couple of events. I guess yeah. I said two, but it's more than that. So yeah. Um, yeah. It was a really, really nice birthday. Yeah. It was a series of events over a couple yes. of days. Yeah. yeah like exactly. Super fun. I love that. I like that's the thing too. I don't feel like when you're in your 20s that your birthday has to be this big banger crazy party. You know? Yeah, no. It's just kind of doing fun stuff and especially when you're working full time is just finding ways to relax and just do something that yes. you, want, you want to do and enjoy. When you have so little time, you want to do something that you right. really want to spend your time doing. <laughs> so Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's just some some nice relaxing things, I feel exactly. like. Exactly. But yeah. and it's also just a nice way to like have the excuse to make people do whatever you want yeah. for the day. Like you're like, I know you wouldn't normally really want to go do this, but you're going to because of the yeah. and they have to. So yeah. Yeah. But what about you? What was the best part of your week? So the best part of my week was I think it was Thursday night. I met with a lady from our church because I joined their prayer team at the at the church and she was kind of oh, showing me awesome. the ropes and making sure that I knew how to like navigate their website and things like that their church website and it's kind of twofold because I first met with her and one of the pastors a few weeks ago just to kind mm -hmm. of talk about if I'm interested in the prayer team I had submitted an application was interested in joining and just actually being part of the church and not just attending you know really getting in invested in their ministries. And I was, it was a great meeting. It was, they're just great people. I forget how great it is to be among God's people. Yeah. And they were just so positive and sweet. And it was great to hear about their families. And they asked me about my life. And it was just really fun. Like, I am not always the person who loves to meet new people. That's not necessarily me. Yeah. <laughs> but in this instance, it was really nice. And I haven't really met someone new in a long time, which is weird to say, but because I'm so integrated in my husband's family and their family friends, and we're, we have mm -hmm. these really deep, close relationships with people we've known for a long time, I haven't really met new people in a long time, which might sound weird, but it was just great. It was really nice to have that meeting and, you know, just start being more part of the church. So that's probably the best part of my week. Yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes 
when you think about meeting new people, it's like you only think about the bad times you've met new people where you're like, it was super awkward. So I think it's easy to forget meeting people that you just like mm-hmm. click with immediately. Um, so that's always awesome to like meet people in your church that you just immediately click with. Yeah, and, like, it's can a kind huge of, like, surprise. Start a relationship with. But with that said, we wanted to jump into our episode for today. We're talking about, about like I mentioned, the end times, which I... I've learned so much about end times now that I've started studying it a little bit more because when I was younger, what I did is I just read Revelation one time and I think I was like 10 or 11 or 12, which there is just no way to comprehend that book when I was that young and I didn't have the spiritual maturity. This is something that we'll mention a little bit later, but keeping in mind that reading Revelation kind of requires you to understand the whole Bible as a as its biblical narrative and know how everything that happened in the Bible is now culminating in this revelation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we've been talking about spiritual warfare. So, you know, we decided let's visit the book that culminates in this, this storytelling, this amazing imagery, this apocalyptic vision that is given to the apostle John, which reveals this heavenly divine understanding of the spiritual reality, the spiritual warfare that we've been talking about this whole series and what is the revelation to John. So it's that final book that's in your Bible. I think we often think of Revelation as prophecy for the future, but we kind of wanted to challenge you to see it in its past, present, and its future context. So keeping in mind with every book that we talk about in the Bible, we want to put it in its its historical context to understand, okay, who wrote it? Who is it being written to? What was the purpose? Keeping that in mind. And it was written to the first century, in the first century by John. But it was, of course, inspired by Jesus. So it was given to John to write down. And it was distributed to the seven churches in Asia Minor that are mentioned in the first couple chapters. This was during a time where Rome was very powerful. There was Christian persecution. Uh, There was a lot of culture was not very accepting of the message of this Jesus. You can kind of read about a lot of the persecution that was going on during Acts and just keeping in mind how how hard it was for the early church to kind of get up off the ground, but that this Jesus movement was spreading mm-hmm. everywhere. So that's the context when we look at it in its past context. And when we read it today, I think it's important for us to also put it in its present context to understand that today, as much as in the first century, there are still spiritual forces that are animating the evil that we see in the world. There are still Babylons, there are still Romes, there are still institutions that that do evil things and don't honor God. So there's evil forces that can manifest in those powerful empires and countries that the way that was described in Revelation, which was as a time Rome. And what that tells us right now is that Revelation can show us the current moral state of affairs, where humanity is at, as much as it did back in the first century. So when you read Revelation, and we can see that there are martyrs that are being persecuted on behalf of Christ, there are people that are suffering on behalf of Christ and there are evil empires that are doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. That's where we can really understand like that stuff is still happening today. Christians are still being persecuted today. There's people that are rejecting God's word and rejecting Jesus. So that's still happening as much today as it was then. And I also like we often do is keeping in mind its future context as well, that some of the events that we read haven't necessarily come to pass. Jesus hasn't come again yet the second time. And so there are still things that we can anticipate. We can read Revelation in its future lens. Keeping in mind that as we read through Revelation, we see this image of the lamb who conquers everything through his blood, through his sacrifice, that in fact, the way that Christians conquer is by giving up their life, by sacrificing themselves and by putting other people first. That's the way that we actually win. That's the way that we achieve victory is by placing other people before us, which is the complete opposite of what the world tells us to do. Mm -hmm. The book of Revelation is all about this concept of revealing. So pulling back a curtain or turning on the light and showing what was always there, being able to see divine truth as something that already exists there. And that's really what Revelation is all about. There are really strong allusions to Isaiah, to Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Daniel, which also have apocalyptic literature within them. So a couple of those books are almost fully or just they're partially this apocalyptic literature, this prophetic revelation that you're seeing. So keeping in mind that reading right, reading Revelation, if you're literate in those other books, it will really help you understand that. If you're literate in the whole Bible, Revelation will make a lot more sense than if it's if it's if you're not. So understanding the end times, understanding Revelation 
is preceded by an understanding of the whole biblical narrative, and it's informed by a clear foundation of the gospel. So for Christians, Revelation is super, I think it can be really challenging, but also there's a lot of comfort that you can find in the fact that God gets the win in the end. And it Revelation even kind of shows this is how we win, by the blood of the Lamb. Yeah, I love just the point that you made uh, at the beginning of um, talking about the book of Revelation, that it really is like a culmination of the entire biblical narrative. So it's not just a book on its own. Like when you, I mean, as any other book in the Bible, of course, like it's all one big whole narrative, but um, especially with books like Revelation that are um, considered prophetic, it's like very, very important to see how other books of the Bible kind of play into that and other contexts play into that. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I think it's, it's often really common among churches today um, and in several churches, especially in the West, I think to focus on kind of like the nitty gritty within the book of revelation and try to um, predict how things will come to an end or when things will come to an end. And they try to kind of go into that. Um, and while there are, plenty of contextual details that exist within the book of Revelation um, that point to different things like the culture of, um, you know, Israel at that time or, um, you know, different practices that were put in place in the time of the law that are mentioned. Like mm-hmm. there are a lot, there's a lot, <laughs> like there are a yeah. lot of things in there that like do point to something. So they're not just like, words or phrases put there for absolutely no reason. Um, But I just wanted to say, like, just kind of give a little disclaimer, like, in my opinion, I just kind of feel like it's not that helpful um, to attempt to predict, you know, when things will happen. It's not biblical either. Um, Or like exactly what leads up to the end of time or whether the rapture exists or whether you're pre mid or post tribulation, Um, like all of that kind of stuff. It's like, I've just seen so many churches and I grew up in a church actually that kind of tried to predict like the timeline of all those things and exactly when those things would happen. And um, there are a lot of things that we can take from Revelation, but I think a lot of those specifics are not really given concrete. Um, And so it can be kind of dangerous. And honestly, I think it's just kind of divisive to just try to argue your point when there really isn't any proof anywhere to back up your point because scripture itself ends after that book. You know, there isn't like something that kind of goes on from there to say like, and this is when it will all happen. And this is what that all means. Like, um, so you know, don't hear me wrong. Like there are a lot of things we can know from Revelation, a lot of things that we can learn from the book, um, which we're going to talk about in a minute here in more detail. Um, But just kind of a warning not to get so hung up on like all the little details of every single thing there when some of that is just something that we can't necessarily know. Mm -hmm. Right. Because God's not a God of fear. And I think when we approach Revelation in that way, causes a lot of fear. There's a feeling of kind of doom like mm-hmm. impending doom that there's a lot of things in revelations that are kind of scary and weird yeah. and troubling to read about. And so mm-hmm. for, for someone who is a 21st century American stepping into this, this Bible, this book that was written in the first century to a different audience, it's very hard to access some of that. And I was kind of, I was listening to some of the Bible projects, like content they've released on this, like some of their videos and their podcasts. And they made the point that, when you decode Revelation, you have to decode it from a biblical lens. So using other right. books of the Bible to decode its imagery, its symbols, the different like colors or images that you're going to see throughout, even when you look at the person of Jesus, which we'll talk about as well, but all the different things you see in Revelation, you can decode it using a biblical lens. But if you decode it using like this modern American lens of like, when will this happen? That's where we really fall. That's where it doesn't make a lot of sense. That's where we get into like conspiracy theories and right. living in such a way that isn't helpful to, right. to the kingdom building that we're supposed to be doing right now. And even because you said there's things that we can't know. We've had this theme all throughout our spiritual warfare series. Like there's things that God didn't put in the Bible for a reason that we don't know for a good reason. Mm-hmm. And Jesus even said in Mark 13, I think this is also in Matthew, he talks about in verse 32 through 37, he doesn't know the time or the hour that he's going to mm-hmm. be coming back. So is it biblical for us to try to predict that? No, that's not something that 
we're supposed to be prayed to. We can have a whole other conversation about the person of Jesus and that he is God and that he doesn't know this thing. You know, mm-hmm. that's like a whole other thing we could talk about. But right, <laughs> we sh- because we're not privy to it and because of this verse, I don't see precedent that we should go seeking to decode that and like figure out mm-hmm. exactly how everything is going to happen. Right, exactly. Like there are so many things that we can know and that God gives us the gift of knowledge and understanding. Um, But there are also a lot of things that we just can't know that I feel like we probably can't even comprehend Mm -hmm. in our finite human minds. Like we just won't be able to fully comprehend certain things. Like for instance, the character of God, there's a lot of things that we know about God. We know who he is. We know who he's not, but we're not going to ever be able to fully comprehend that here Mm -hmm. on this earth. So you know, this is one topic that while it's fine to discuss and research, we ultimately really should trust in God's sovereignty and just know that he has planned all of these things out for his glory and for our good and that his will will come to pass. And that is a good thing, yeah. um, you know, because he's, he's a good God. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we just shouldn't forget about the bigger picture basically, as we seek to understand the, the details, mm-hmm. um, that, we might have to accept certain things only God knows, you know, it's like, we just want to be careful of that because there's definitely a balance there of like, we can know things. It's great to research them, but at the same time, like don't let it get to a point where you start to doubt the more concrete things like God's character or his word. Mm -hmm. Um, Cause that just gets into really dangerous, dangerous territory. Yeah, I th- I think about in First Corinthians too, where Paul is talking about wisdom from the spirit, and he's talking about how what no eye has seen or ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. How incredible is this future that God has planned for us? That even when He pulls back the curtain a little bit, like in this book of Revelation, how confusing it is. So if right. this is like the tip of the iceberg. You can't even imagine what is in store. We right. as Christians like cannot even imagine what's in store for us, what God has prepared for those who love him, those who are pursuing him and building his kingdom. If this, that small pulling back of the curtain or like turning on the little flashlight to see part of the painting is mm-hmm. that confusing, of course, like we can't even imagine what's beyond that. So right. it's like cherish what we have right now in the book of Revelation and to treat it with honor and respect instead of treating it with like, oh, I'm going to like figure out what everything means and what exactly things will happen. I'm going to use it to scare people or, you know. Right. Or just make it myself scared. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> reading it and trying to understand like every little thing about it. And um, yeah, because you're right. Like, for instance, we talked last episode about um, spiritual beings and some of the descriptions of angels from our perspective, probably like in the West, based on what we know to be normal versus abnormal they sound terrifying and angels are like these glorious, you know, transcendent beings, like not above God, of course, but definitely like they're heavenly beings, you know? And so it's like, just that alone, I think kind of clues you into like, yeah, we don't get it. Yeah, (laughs) And we can't fully get it. (laughs) Right. And because Um, we don't, I think it gives us even more comfort for what we do know, for what we can be sure of. I think that's the person of Jesus. That's who we encounter in Revelation, who this book has Mm -hmm. been about. And when I say book, I say this Bible. This is the Messiah that's prophesied about the whole, you know, the Old Testament mentioned the first time in Genesis 3. And this book culminates in the person of Jesus, who's, who's sitting at the right hand of God, the father at his throne. So one thing that really struck me is how Jesus is described in Revelation. Like I said, I've read Revelation multiple times, but when I read it again, and I was looking at the study notes in my study Bible for what the description of Jesus means, it was like mind blowing to me. So I'm just going to read a little bit to you from the first chapter. So starting in verse 12, John writes, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Like crazy, crazy stuff. Like there's a sword coming out of Jesus's mouth. Like what is happening? First time I read this, it was really terrifying. But when I think again of that, that skill of decoding revelation with other biblical narrative and using other symbols that we see in other Jewish literature earlier in the Old Testament actually helps a lot. And this is much less scary. Mm -hmm. So the son of man is the allusion to Daniel 7. It's this Messiah. It's the way that Jesus referred to himself. And I'm I'm pulling from the ESV study Bible notes that I found in my Bible. And the white hair that Jesus has is a symbol for his wisdom. What he is wearing, so his royal sash and his his robe is is indicative of his kingliness, his royalty, his above allness, his complete supremacy. His eyes of fire, well, that's terrifying to hear. It's the fact that he penetrates and he purifies. He sees truth and nothing can deceive him, which is actually the most one of the most comforting parts about Jesus. You know, he can't be deceived. He knows all the truth. His feet that are burnished bronze, they can crush, they can overpower the earth. It shows his his complete power over everything, his control over everything. And then lastly, that's the two-edged sword that we see coming out of his mouth, which was the coolest thing ever is that this is because he is God's word. So John 1 says that he is the word of God. And we see that in Hebrews 4, the word of God, the Bible is described as being like a two-edged sword. So the word of God, who is Jesus himself, is also the same sword that is coming from his mouth because he is the quite literal, the word of God, like he is God. I don't even know how much better to say say that, but how cool that is that this is like this terrifying yet fascinating image of Jesus. But when we use other parts of the Bible to understand it and other symbols, then it starts to make so much more sense and like what John saw and is describing to us becomes so much more accessible because even then with being in the first century, his audience probably would have likely been a lot more familiar with these types of images and it wouldn't have been like probably as crazy them. I mean, I'm sure it was still a crazy thing to, to hear when it was read aloud, but the images would have been a lot more accessible and familiar to them than they are to us reading them right now. But that's mm-hmm. the person of Jesus. That's the person we encounter in Revelation who this, this whole Bible has been about. This is the person that came and died and he says, I died and behold, I'm alive again. Mm-hmm. Here I am. And so he affirms to John, this is this is me, Jesus. I'm like, I'm that same guy. And you're seeing me in a completely divine context in a way that, you know, you didn't see before when I was a human on earth. So just like crazy yeah. stuff going on. No, there. it is crazy. I remember like the first time I ever heard that description of Jesus, I was like, <laughs> you know, the the like the lampstands and like the yeah. golden like the stars the mm-hmm. eyes the sash like hair is you know white I was like okay yeah like okay cool, cool. <laughs> and then like you get to the sword coming out of his mouth and I was like wait what um, you lost right. me you lost me I was yeah like, what's happening what's happening here um but then yeah like when you do break it down the way that you just did and um you understand like Jesus is you know, the word he's, he's the logos, he's the word of God. Um, and also like just connecting that to the sword. It's like what we were talking about earlier. You kind of have to understand other parts of scripture. Like if you hadn't read Hebrews, you'd be like, why is it a sword? I don't get it. Like you would, you know, but then you understand that means that's talking about God's word, scripture, Mm -hmm. Jesus all goes together. So yeah, super interesting. Yeah. And even further, this is kind of an aside, but how much more that affirms the Bible as it exists too, that it references itself so much and that it is so aware of itself in other areas. Right. And I love that Jesus has that sword coming out of his mouth because everything that Jesus says has to be the word of God because he is God. So Mm -hmm. even more, it just further confirms and affirms his identity as the son of man, but also the son of God. So I'm I would imagine that as John, that was such a beautiful thing to experience and to see like, yes, this is the guy that I believe in and I'm getting that confirmation and like my faith means something because everything he says has to be the word of God because he is God. He can't help it but be God, you know? Right. That's what's really, what I really liked about that imagery in the first chapter. However, something that we see when we kind of move further along into Revelation, I don't, I believe Jesus only referred to again as like a man one more time when he's riding on a horse, but almost every other time that Jesus is referred to all throughout the rest of Revelation, 
he's a lamb. And this is the image that we get. We get this all throughout scripture. So we see this, we see this in Revelation 5. So John writes verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures. Those are the four creatures that we talked about last episode, by the way. And among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This is that same lamb. This is the same person we just saw in verse one, who who is a man with the sword coming in his mouth and the eyes like fire, wearing the royal robes. That's that same person, just in this completely different understanding of him as the lamb, as a sacrificial lamb that laid down his life. But he's this eternal victor, and it's it's weird because we're looking at him and he's slain, like he's he's bloody or he's hurt or he's injured there's something about this lamb that you can tell that he's been wounded in some way but he's yet alive mm-hmm. and he's whole so he has the seven horns and the seven eyes which we we also understand is the number of wholeness of completeness and of peace throughout the bible so that also helps us you know make a lot more sense of that and this is this is even referring back into that first chapter of john where he says behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world so jesus mm-hmm. was the lamb then and is still the lamb now and will be the lamb in the future so when all this is said and done, when the world comes to an end, when everything is wrapped up, Jesus is still that lamb. Mm-hmm. This is also referred to again in Revelation 12. He says, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. This is talking about Christian martyrs. This is talking about how Christ followers that have given up their lives and been persecuted on behalf of Jesus. And John is saying, look, these people conquered by the blood of the lamb, they win because they. what it looks like is that they lost. Like on earth, it, it looks like they lost, but in fact, they win. They win with this victor that was also slain on their behalf. Mm-hmm. And again, in Revelation 13, all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. So it's just further emphasizing the way Jesus wins is by giving up himself. That's actually the way Christians win too, is by doing the opposite of what the world would think of not conquering and pushing other people down and like thinking that you have to be the best or finding these worldly standards by which to succeed. But in fact, what the world looks counts as losing is Jesus winning. So it's comforting, although it is like a little scary because you're talking about like martyrs, people who have literally been killed and murdered on Jesus's behalf. John is saying here they win because it looks like they lost, but they win with this victor who also was slain and who's bloodied <laughs> and who's injured. Yeah, the point that you just made um, made me think of of the verse in Matthew 16. Um, it's verses 24 through 26. And it says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man come uh, coming into in his kingdom. So it just made me think of like that passage, just what you were saying, basically, like you have victory in the lamb who was slain. It's kind of the same concept here of like to gain your life, you have to lose it. Um, And that's not talking about like in a literal sense here where it's saying basically like you're going to have to die right now in order to like gain life. It's more saying like you have to lay down your own life, your own desires, your own will. Like you have to die to yourself in order to gain um, eternal life. Um, And obviously like it's a little bit more complex than that. The whole process of soteriology and salvation and all of those things. Um, but just this passage specifically is basically, um, stating that, that fact, um, like that alone obviously won't save you just like doing the right thing and doing good things, um, as we've talked about in previous episodes, but, um, basically just like for those who are believers, like you have to lay down your own life, um, in order to gain, gain it basically like the world isn't worth (laughs) forfeiting your soul. Um, is kind of the point that Jesus is making here. So, um, yeah, just thought of that and the end of it too, where it talks about Jesus's return. Yeah. That kind of reminds me of the passage that Paul wrote about when you're, when you're in Christ, you're a new creation, Mm -hmm. that you're a whole different person. So that old person has to die, has to go away and has to be ended. And that doesn't mean that 
everything's always going to be perfect. You're all, you're always going to make the right choices and you're never going to mess up again. But like Paul talks about, we put to death our sin. We don't let that live in us anymore. So there is something that dies rightly. And mm-hmm. I also like that you really, you mentioned that like spiritual death and taking up your cross. I think that's a really great thing that you mentioned because I think it can be hard to kind of relate to the fact that there were people in the first century who were being killed in like horrendous, horrendous ways on behalf of Jesus. Because Right now, in our context, our modern context, it's very unlikely that we'll ever face that kind of physical persecution. Yeah. Like death, like the martyrs did. But I think we can still face persecution. We're going to face rejection, like bullying, pain, hurt, even name calling. People are going to reject Jesus and they're going to reject us because they reject the word of God. Mm-hmm. So we're still going to face persecution in that sense. And there's going to be people who are against us because of our faith. But there are still people around the world who are being persecuted physically. And by their government for their faith in Jesus, there's still countries that don't accept the word of God. There's still countries that you're not allowed to take the Bible into. Like there's there's still places that don't accept God to that level. And we're so blessed in this country to have that kind of freedom to be able to follow Jesus without worrying that we're, we're literally going to be murdered. So yes, mm-hmm. we're still going to face persecution. And in fact, I think that's why revelation can like be really challenging because we can understand that we're not necessarily going to face that kind of level of pain and we still need to be faithful regardless Mm -hmm. of whether what we experience is not as intense as that we're still going to face some kind of persecution you know jesus said we will have trouble in this world and that you will be despised and rejected but it like it's also really discomforting too that we don't live in that kind of world anymore that that we at least in america right now have that experience where we can be free Mm-hmm. So whatever per- per- persecution we do face b- from others, we can bear it all even better because we know the people that came before us and laid the path for our faith have suffered so greatly for what we can enjoy now. As we talked about in our first episode, um, persecution is not necessarily something that we'll experience here in the West at the same level as someone might in another country where something like Christianity is outlawed, um, you know, and there's only one religion that's allowed um, however, spiritual warfare comes in so many different forms, you know, it's like, we have to, we still have to face spiritual warfare, of different kinds. And so, um, there are things that we can do, you know, to kind of be ready to do that, to arm ourselves, um, just against all of those things. And, you know, for persecution, if it may come, you know, at some point, like who knows, um, how things will change, obviously like God willing, that won't happen, but it's just like, you know, these are things that we need to be sober minded about. Um, so I think just kind of moving forward, we wanted to talk about what the church's job is, like as we wait for the return of Jesus and as we fight spiritual battles in um, this temporal life and as we're here on earth, um, basically, what should Jesus find us doing upon his return? Like, what are the things that we should be doing to prepare for his return? Um, so the first one that we wanted to mention was that honestly, we should be busy going about good work, (laughs) um, not because we want to earn salvation or make a name for ourselves. Um, but so more, so many more people may see Christ in us and surrender their eternal destiny to his hands, um, you know, by these good works. And obviously like, that's not in our control, like that's in God's control, but, um, we should be busily going about, doing work for his kingdom um, and being used by him in order to point other people to him. And also, I think that just kind of pertains to not being so focused on like the end. Um, That's something I've seen a lot of churches do too, where it's like, they'll talk about the end times as if like, you have to be thinking about it 24 Uh seven. And like, yes, we're supposed to be watchful. We're supposed to be ready Um, But I don't think that this is something that's supposed to, like, make us afraid. Um, Like, oh, it could end at any second, you know. Um, And then also it it can't, it shouldn't make us lazy. Like, it shouldn't make us passive so that we're just kind of, like, not really doing anything because we're like, well, it's going to end anyway. Like, we should be going about the work that God has put before us and that God has set out for us to do. Um, But... On that note, we should be ready and watchful. As uh, Matthew 25 says, um, we should be basically waiting um, for this return of Jesus. We should be ready for it. It shouldn't be something that like we never think about. Um, like, yes, don't let it take over your entire mind where like all you can think about is the end. 
Um, but at the same time, like it should be something that we're aware of. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we should be going and doing the things that God has asked us to do, the things that God has commanded for us to do as Christians. Um, and we shouldn't take advantage of the time that we have. I'm glad that you mentioned Matthew 25, because I think that the analogies that Jesus gives us for the kingdom of God translate directly to this understanding of revelation and of the end times. So I know like you'll hear people when like bad things happen on the news of like, we're in the end times, like the bad things are happening. And I think that it's much more helpful instead to know we're ever approaching that period. Like every minute that passes, we get closer to that. And we still don't know when that will happen, but like we're under the new covenant. We're under this new system of how faith works and how following God works. So regardless of whether we're getting closer to that minute or not, we we need to be building the kingdom. We need to be multiplying what God has given us now. And that looks different for all sorts of people, depending on your set of gifts, the communities God's placed you in, the relationships he's given you. Like mm -hmm. multiplying might sometimes look like working on that relationship with one person that you know is not, not a believer and like witnessing to them and having your life be a beautiful witness to God and how he's changed you. Like that could be your witness, but your witness could also be if you get to communicate with people on a large scale or if you're a leader in your job or at church, like all those different things, those are your communities and where you multiply. And Matthew 25 really helps us with that, with those different parables that Jesus gave us. So I think of the parable of the 10 virgins mm -hmm. and how half of them were ready and half of them were not. And like how stupid those five look that didn't have oil on their lamps because the bridegroom comes back and like they're not, they're like, Lord, Lord, open up to us. And he says, I don't know you. So watch, therefore, because you don't know the day or the hour, because you aren't aware of when Jesus is coming, be prepared now. Don't, don't say like, I'm going to get prepared for Jesus in five days or in five years, or like, I'm going to start doing the things God wants me to do later <laughs> because Jesus is coming later. Like do it now, be prepared now, because that's what would be wise for you to do. And I also think of the parable, of the 10 talents, like Jesus essentially like the master has gone away and has given you these resources. Your resources as a Christian today are your talents, your gifts, your relationships, your job, your church, like all those different things that you get to have right now and those fears you get to operate in. So those are your resources. Those are almost like your talents. So the ones that multiplied and took the resources to create more and to build more wealth, and in this sense, it's a spiritual wealth, um, witnessing more, if you can, evangelizing to people so that they can come to know Christ, but most of all, just using the time and the resources and the things that you have right now to glorify God so that your life is a witness to other people, even if they're already Christians, but just reminding like that Jesus is in your life and that it, your, your life is going to look so distinctly different. So you're going to multiply upon those things that God gave you. And then finally, like later in the chapter where, where God, Jesus is talking about the final judgment and the fact that he's going to sit on his glorious throne, the people, some people are going to come to him and say, like, I did all these things for you. And mm -hmm. Jesus is going to say, I don't know you because you didn't do them in love. You didn't do them for me. I'm not, I don't know you because you didn't serve me. Like you were doing just all these good things. But when he's talking about how we we help the least of these, those who are hungry, those who don't have food, those who are thirsty, and those who have less, like reaching out to people that have less, whether that's physically in this life and like true poverty, but also spiritual poverty, like using those things that we have this overflowing wealth, the spiritual wealth that we have in our lives to minister to people who have less, even if that is just spiritually, like people who are spiritually poor and spiritually bankrupt. Like Matthew 25 is this like, thing that this whole chapter that wraps back into this understanding of our revelation that while we are waiting, while we await Jesus's arrival and return, like we should be doing all those things. We should be busy going about work. Because like that verse from Ephesians, the days are so evil. Like people are all so longing to see truth and to see love and we can be that. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't know. It's just a really beautiful chapter that kind of reminds us of like what we should be doing now. And how that's important because sometimes it feels like as a Christian, you're like, you're doing these good things and you kind of forget what you're doing them for. You're doing this for this lamb, for the mm -hmm. lamb that like gave himself up so that you could have life. So why wouldn't you want to multiply that wealth or those talents that he gave you? Yeah. And I think that's just one really good example of like 
a place in scripture that talks about the end times that is not just something that we read and we're like, okay, cool. Like it's like something that we could actually learn from and move forward on. Another passage in Revelation, or a couple passages, honestly, um, talk about the churches of Asia Minor. And these are basically some churches that we can truly learn from as well, like moving forward and um, looking at what they did well, what they did unwell, you know? Yeah. Because basically, these are churches that a letter was written, or like a passage of Revelation was written to each of them, um, basically just commending them for certain things, um, saying like, this is what you're doing great, like keep doing that and encouraging them. But then also saying, these are the things that you've fallen into, like these are some pitfalls that you need to be convicted of and that you need to change. Um, And you know, so I think as this pertains directly to the end times and the things that the believers in the churches should and shouldn't have been doing, this is definitely something that we can learn from in the church today. Um, so I just kind of wanted to go through and just give like a brief description of each of those churches and just explain like what they were doing well, what they were not doing so well, um, and what they were urged to do to fix the issue. So um, the first church that's mentioned is the Church of Ephesus. Um, and the things that they were doing right, they had doctoral, dro- excuse me, doctrinal vigilance and endurance. Um, so basically, you know, they were really involved in their doctrine. They had vigilance in it and they had endurance and they were enduring in holding on to truth. However, they had lost their first love. And that first love that it's talking about is Jesus. Basically, they had kind of gone so doctrinal that they had abandoned their zeal for the gospel and for Jesus. They had just kind of lost that excitement for it. And they had gotten caught up in um, just kind of focusing only on the doctrinal things and not on other things that actually like why they were doing what they're doing. And I think we see this today. Like we'll see a lot of places or churches where it's like, we're so focused on the doctrinal things that like we forget to have compassion for people because we love because Jesus first loved us. Like, you know, it's like it goes into so many parts of your church and your ministry. Um, So the solution that's offered here is to remember um, their first love, to repent and to do the works done at first. Um, So kind of return to their roots in that. The next church that's mentioned is the church of Smyrna. And this church was commended for being spiritually rich and enduring persecution. There was a lot of persecution that was going on around this church and they endured it well. Um, there's actually no rebuke for this church. Um, there's only two of these churches out of the seven that don't get a rebuke, and this is one of them. So basically the solution here, like the encouragement is just to continue to be faithful, be faithful unto death. Um, so that's definitely obviously something we should practice is just being spiritually rich, continuing to enrich our spiritual lives. And you know, when persecution does come, just being able to endure that through holding on to the word of God, um, just being faithful to that. So the next church that's mentioned is the Church of Pergamum, um, and this church was commended for holding fast to Christ's name and not denying their faith. So they were strong in their faith, um, they weren't denying the truth, and yet they were allowing false teaching. So it was kind of seems like it was a like <laughs> weird mixture of like holding on to like holding on to Christ's name, like holding fast to him, being faithful to him, not denying their faith, being bold, but then also like not focusing on the truth of actual doctrinal teaching. Like they were allowing false teaching to run rampant in their church. Um, So really just the only solution that is given here is just to repent, repent, move forward, you know, get the false teaching out. Um, The next church is Thyatira. And that church was committed for growing love, evidence, and deeds of service. So it was evident in the way that they behaved and the way that they acted towards one another um, that they were just very loving. Um, However, they had a lack of discernment and they tolerated heresy. Um, This one really makes me think of churches today (laughs) because... I think we see this a lot. Like you grow in love and you emphasize love and you constantly are emphasizing kindness and being intentional about loving other people. But in that, you just throw away discernment and you just tolerate anything that anyone says for the sake of, you know, quote unquote, loving them. 
Um, and, you know, we've talked about this before, like in other episodes too, where it's yeah. like, you're not really loving someone if you're letting them live in lives. But um, this is something that the church was guilty of. And so the solution that was given to them was to hold fast and keep Christ's works till the end. Yeah. Um, so, you know, to continue growing in love, but also to hold fast to truth. And the next church is the church of Sardis. Um, so what they were commended for is a few remain pure and loyal. A few. <laughs> um, a few. And <laughs> what they were uh, rebuked for was dead works. Um, I feel like that kind of speaks for itself. I don't know. Um, you know, just the fact that some of them were pure and loyal. Um, but also it seems like their faith was dead. You know, um, they just had dead works. Um, so the encouragement given there was just to keep the word and to repent of, you know, the things that they were doing wrong, perhaps the people who were not being pure and loyal to repent and continue to keep the word and continue to preach truth. Um, which I think we see this too. Honestly, I feel like every single one of these churches, like you can kind of see in a church, at least one today. So the sixth church is the church of Philadelphia. And this church was commended for patiently enduring, keeping God's word and not denying his name. Um, so they were doing a good job, just being patient, keeping God's word, keeping the truth. And they were also being bold. They were standing firm in their faith and they were not denying his name. Um, this is another church. This is the second one that did not get a rebuke. Um, so again, their encouragement was kind of just like, hold fast to what you have, hold fast to what you're doing already and just continue on in the faith. And the last church that's mentioned is the church of Laodicea. Now, this church is the only one mentioned here that doesn't get something that they're commended for. Yeah. Yeah. They don't, they're not commended for anything. Mm -hmm. So basically they were really falling off the wagon. Yeah. Because they were not doing anything wrong. And the language used towards this church is very strong um, yes. in the passage. So in Revelation 3, starting in verse 14, this is to the church in Laodicea, it says, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So definitely very strong language. He literally says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Yeah. That's, yeah, and this is Jesus talking. Like, right. That's terrifying. Exactly. Um, and I mean, he does say, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So he adds in here, like, I love you. And so right. I'm going to discipline you and tell you how to change. And then he adds, so be zealous and repent. So he basically kind of tells them, this is what you're doing wrong. You know, you're being spiritually blind. You're bankrupt spiritually. You're lukewarm spiritually. Um, you're in shame. You're naked is how he puts it. And then he basically tells them what to do. He tells them to basically like in short terms, buy gold, white garments and sell from Christ and be zealous and repent. But he also kind of explains what he means by those three things at the beginning there. Like for instance, it says buy for me gold refined by the fire. So basically like you need refining. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, white garments that you might clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. So like basically putting away shame yeah. and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. So their eyes to be opened. So he pretty plainly puts it <laughs> that they need to change. Like something's got to change here. They're lukewarm. They're not hot. They're not cold. Um, he basically says, I would rather you be cold than to be lukewarm. Because when you're lukewarm, you're just indifferent. You just don't care. You're yeah. blind. You're bankrupt. You're naked. You know, it's like just the worst situation to be in. So, you know, obviously this is something to just think about. I remember like this passage almost scaring me when I was a kid because I was like, I don't want to be lukewarm. But 
I think what it really means is just being complacent. Like you just don't care anymore. You're like, you're kind of just indifferent. Like you're just not really caring about it. But at the same time, like you don't hate it, but you don't love it. Like you're kind of just indifferent to your faith Mm -hmm. and to the gospel and to um, Jesus himself. And that is a very, very dangerous place to be for sure. Yeah, when you don't care anymore, you're like the most dangerous place by that point. Because for sure, I think we've seen we've talked about this on this podcast and about other verses. Like Jesus hates the half trying. Like Jesus hates the like pretending and the fraudulent. Like that's what he hated in the Pharisees. Not that he hated mm-hmm. the Pharisees because he loved them, he created them, but that he hated that attitude within them. That he told them they were like whitewashed tombs because that's such a dead way to live. Like. To like half be doing it. And I even see to just kind of disseminate through these other churches is like Jesus, the things that some of them are struggling with were really serious, false teaching, lack of discernment, sexual immorality, having like works without faith. Like those are pretty serious indictments. But yeah, yeah. Jesus was still willing to accommodate them for the things that they were doing and saying, like, I see the efforts that you're making. And not to say that like you should be complacent. And if you're like, half trying like oh jesus sees you're trying like that's not what i'm saying but jesus was saying like i see the things you are trying to do that doesn't mean you can't get better like this is what you need to keep doing and these are the things that you need to be rid of because i i demand holiness because i am holy be holy as i am holy and well i would caution us against like trying too much to like insert ourselves into revelation two and three i think that When I was talking at the beginning about how Revelation speaks to our future moral state, you can see that these churches, they're still what's happening today because humanity doesn't change. Jesus sanctifies us as individuals, but humanity is always in a state of sin. Like That's where we are. That's why Jesus had to come save us. So that's why we can look at these churches and we can still see today's churches are doing these things. Like Maybe even while we were reading those, there was like things you would think about in your own church that you're kind of recognizing, okay, we're doing that well, but we really do identify with that struggle, like losing our love and our zeal for Jesus or being lukewarm or mm-hmm. allowing some false teaching or some heresy, like some things in there because we want to be loving or we want to be, you know, whatever it is kind. We want to be seen well by the world. It's because these things are so relatable because like humans haven't changed. Like humanity will always be in this fallen state until Jesus comes back and resolves all these things and reigns in perfect peace. So it's a conviction for us. We're supposed mm-hmm. to look at it and say like, we understand that this is something we can fall into just as much as those churches did. So we need to be vigilant. We need to be watchful. We need to be like those five virgins that had the oil that are ready, waiting for Jesus. And they're anticipating his arrival because they're excited for him to come back. That's right. what we should be doing. And if you're lukewarm, like you're you're not in a great spot. And not that you can't come back for that because Jesus gives you a solution like to repent and to return back to him. If you've gotten there, you're not too far. But at the same time, if you've gotten there, you are in a dangerous place. So to mm-hmm. just keep in mind like that we as Christians can all experience these kind of emotions where some days we feel complacent about our faith or some days we just don't care or some days we've kind of lost our excitement for, for the gospel and for Jesus. And so Jesus is saying like, I know that because you're human. I know that's what's going to happen, but I don't want you to stay there. I'm not okay with you just staying there. So I'm going to give you solutions because I love you and I'm going to rebuke you because I care about you and I want mm-hmm. you to be holy like me because i love that you said like jesus rebukes those whom he loves it wouldn't be love if he just let you stay there if he just let you stay in your own filth you know that's not that's not what he's doing in these churches he's saying i'm seeing the good things you're doing but i need you to work on these other aspects in your church and like you said those are pretty serious things like he's gonna spit you out of his mouth if you don't repent it's that serious to God and not in a way to scare you because he gives you the grace to get better, but in a way to be like, oh, I really do need to work on that. Like, I need to get serious about that because I don't want to be in that kind of position or situation where we come to the end of it and Jesus goes, I never knew you. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be in that situation. We don't want to be lukewarm like like that last church was. I think that the main way we do that and kind of combat becoming that is spending time just increasing our knowledge of things that we can know as God has chosen to reveal them to us, like his word, his character, church history, like those types of things. Because I think those things truly allow us to understand more fully, like the importance and the beauty and the grace of the gospel and of Jesus. And they honestly light a fire in your heart in that way. Cause it's like you, when you just truly understand those things and you've grasped them, obviously we'll never understand them fully, but when you do 
more and more, it kind of just allows you to truly see like the grace that you've been given and how the gospel has been, you know, applied to your life. And that's such a beautiful thing, such a a huge grace and something that will never get old. Like we'll never stop being able to rejoice over that. Before you conclude, I kind of just wanted to end. I think we would be remiss if we don't mention that there are rewards for these churches too. So when we think about the way that we we do good works, yes, because Jesus saved us, and yes, because we are living this holy life, but also because not just so that we can avoid being spit out of Jesus' mouth, not just so we can avoid hell, not just so that we can escape God's wrath. Those are all really important parts of the saving grace of the gospel, but also because there's a reward. There's something waiting for us. Those churches, when Jesus was telling them what to change, he was saying that he would he had promises waiting for them, rewards that were in store for them. For the first church, I'm just kind of going to go down the line and list a couple of them, like the tree of life in paradise, the crown of life, uh, given hidden manna and a white stone with new name on it. They will be given the morning star authority over the nation. So they'll be clothed in white garments, made a pillar of temple um, of the temple for God, inscribed in the book of uh the book of the lamb, they, they will dine with Christ. They will be granted to sit with Christ, not just so that you can avoid being spit out of Jesus' mouth, but because there's all these like incredible things that he is waiting to give you. Like upon his the completion of this biblical timeline about upon the end of all time, he's waiting, like he wants to give you these good things, but he also wouldn't be a loving God if you were to not earn them. We were reading in that other Corinthians passage, like you can't even fathom what God has prepared for you. So we don't just do good things so that we can avoid bad stuff, but because we're earning these treasures in heaven, like we store up these treasures in heaven because God has prepared rewards for us because he delights in us and he loves us. So he wants us to enjoy good things, not just because he's a wrathful God. Yes, he's a wrathful God, but also because he's so loving that he wants us to enjoy that time with him in eternity. So those are the things that they they as churches had to look for. And we know that like we're awaiting our crown. We're awaiting our inheritance with Christ just as much as these churches were. So like if it gets wearying, if it gets tiring, that's the eternal comfort that we have. There's more in store. God has prepared things we cannot even imagine because mm-hmm. he loves us that much and he loves his son and he's well pleased with his son who gave his life, who is this slain lamb who is eternally the slain lamb, but vic- you know was victorious over sin and death on our behalf. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, just kind of getting into some concluding thoughts, um, just wanted to say that um, like the end times, the return of Jesus, study of last days, which is referred to as eschatology, um, should really comfort us as believers rather than scare us. Um, I think, you know, like when I was a little girl, I remember like hearing about this stuff in church, as I mentioned earlier, and it's just like terrifying me. Like I was like, oh my gosh, like when is that going to happen? That's so scary. (laughs) I don't want that to happen before fill in the blank. I'd rather die than like experience the tribulation, all that kind of stuff. Right, exactly. And then also being like, but I wanted to get married and I wanted to have (laughs) kids. And, and I, you know, it's like now, of course, I know nothing we experience on this earth can compare to the glory and the joy of heaven for all eternity, like absolutely nothing. Um, But just to say like, this is something that should truly comfort us and be exciting for us. Um, Jesus' victory over all evil at the end of time and the new heavens and the new earth to come are something to rejoice over, something to be excited about. Um, This is the return of our King, our Savior, our Father. And finally, finally, all things will be made new. Um, you know, no more crying, no more pain, no more death, no more fear, um, you know, what have you. So to end, I kind of just wanted to read Revelation 21, 1 through 7, um, which just talks about the new heavens and the new earth. I read a portion of this in um, one of our last two episodes, but I just kind of wanted to read the whole thing in its completion, just as we kind of finish out this series, because um, this is what we have to look forward to in Christ. And it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So that's just a beautiful picture of what's to come. And that's something that's, I think, so comforting and so exciting. So that is pretty much all that we have to say on this matter, but I hope that you guys just really enjoyed and learned something from this series um, on spiritual warfare. Um, If you haven't listened to the first two episodes, definitely do that. Um, You don't have to listen to them to listen to this one, but I think they definitely help provide kind of a background on just spiritual warfare as a whole and like heavenly beings as we talked about in our last episode. Um, And I don't know what we're going to do next. (laughs) But we'll figure it out. (laughs) And um, on that note, we will see you guys next time.